the year 1851, the place, Akron, Ohio, the issue, women's rights. Many women at this assembly wanted equal privileges as citizens, voting professionally in education. And a lot of folks in the 19th century found this to be strange, did not like this at all. That's why some Presbyterian, Baptist, and Methodist ministers all showed up at the Akron's Women Convention to furnish evidence why the status quo must stay. First minister stood up and he argued from the science of the day. Men had greater cranial capacity. Generally speaking, men have bigger heads. Bigger heads, more brains. Educational privileges were due to men because of their superior intellect. Another thought that the theological approach would be better. So he recalled the sin of our first mother, Eve. All of the world's problems began with the sin of one woman, Eve, blew up our world, wrecked humanity. Therefore, the privileges that these women wanted were forfeit perpetually. A third took a more Christ-centered approach. You see, God had distinguished men because of how he entered the world, the manhood of Jesus Christ. And by the time he had finished with his oration, the wind had been taken out of the sails of this assembly. And then a most unlikely challenger stood up and took her place at the platform. By the way, this woman was uneducated, in fact, illiterate, and a former slave. Now, these hurdles would have caused most to remain seated, but not this woman. She actually stood as tall as me, about six foot, probably could arm wrestle me, was strong as a man, and she had a voice that could make the rafters resound. Her name was Sojourner Truth. Any of you heard of her? She leveled on the first minister, and she said that if a woman's mind could only hold a pint compared to a man's court, wouldn't it be a mean little thing if men didn't ensure that every woman had the opportunity to make their pint all the way full? To the second, she asserted, that if the first woman God ever created was strong enough to turn the whole world upside down, then didn't it stand to reason that all the many women assembled were more than capable of turning the world right side up? By now, the sails were back up, the crowd was beginning to thunder with applause, and then Sojourner turned to the minister who claimed women were due less because Christ was a man. And with eyes glowing and arms outspread, she said, Where did your Christ come from? From God and a woman, man had nothing to do with him. And we learned from history that sojourners showed that women were not to be underestimated. And friends, the Bible actually tells us the same. We're coming to Esther 8 today where we'll find a poor Jewish orphan girl is about to become the most powerful person, powerful person of God in all Old Testament history. Let us first pray. Gracious Father, we ask a very simple prayer. May you grant us ears to hear a better sermon than the preacher is about to preach. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
please turn to Esther 8 in your devices or in your bulletins. You find it printed nicely or in your Bibles. Let us now hear the word of our God. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time. In the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the twenty-third day, and an edict was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And then, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on swift horses, on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in the royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear the Jews had fallen on them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. If you were here last week, you may have noticed in Esther 7 
the author began to emphasize Esther's growing in power, her owning her office. She was actually made queen in chapter 2, and from chapter 2 to chapter 6, the author refers to Esther as queen six times, about once a chapter. In chapter 7 alone, in 10 verses, the author does it seven times. Like the most powerful piece in chess, Esther has moved into position to take out Haman. Haman, the vice president. Haman, the prime minister. Haman, the king's counselor. That's important because the counselor, whoever was in the king's ear, had the ability to manipulate the king. The king is really just a pawn. We've seen that in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. We see Ahasuerus agrees to anything his counselor suggests to him. So when Esther sways the king to take her counsel instead of Haman's, she becomes the most powerful person in all the Persian Empire, 127 provinces. And she also becomes the most powerful Israelite in all Old Testament history, at least in Israel's history. In this, the final book, the final historical book of the Old Testament, I think it's significant that a woman takes center stage. Notice God's people are under the rule of a pagan empire that looks to destroy them. So God raises up a woman who disobeys the king in order to save God's people. And coincidentally, and by that I mean providentially, if you've been following our series, actually Israel's history begins the same way. God's people in Exodus 1 are slaves in pagan Egypt. And Pharaoh commands that all the male baby boys be exterminated, tossed into the river. What does God do? He raises up two women, Shipra and Puah, midwives, who disobey Pharaoh's orders, and they're blessed by God. Do you see the bookends of Israel's Old Testament history? I think the Bible is telling us that women deserve some R-E-S-P-E-C-T. There are actually many women who are key to preserving the line of Jesus Christ. Deborah, Ruth, Jehoshaphat. But Esther, at the end of Old Testament history, is unique. She is revealing the promise of the seed of the woman is actually drawing nigh. Esther is the most powerful and influential woman in all of Israel's history. But great as she is, she is not the one of whom God has spoken of in Genesis 3. Mary is the greater Esther. For she would bear the God-child, our Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus who would become not just the Savior of the Jews, but all nations as Jesus would reverse the curse. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, let's, let's get to our story. Now, I noticed there were not many fans, Haman fan club, not many members of the Haman fan club here last week. Because there's a whole lot of smiles when Haman the Horrible got hanged. But if you're one of the people in Esther 8, one of God's people, you're not smiling. You're not out of the woods yet. There is still an edict out there that calls for the extermination of all your people. On a chosen day, at the end of the year, it's coming. D-Day is coming. And the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be revoked. How can the irreversible be reversed? Can Esther turn the world right side up? Our first word today is promotion, a promotion for Mordecai. We see in verses 1 and 2 that the king, he gives Esther quite the gift. Because Haman was condemned as a traitor, his whole estate was then forfeit to the crown. 
So the king, in a generous display, after all he's done to her, he gives her all that belongs to Haman. And by the way, Haman is incredibly rich. The 10,000 talents of silver, that's equivalent to half of the annual revenue of the Persian Empire. And he was still bragging about all his stuff that he had for all his family. Let me just ask you, what would be the first thing you would do if you instantly became a multi-billionaire? I know, I don't know why I heard a whole lot, right? But Esther, she does not turn selfishly inward for one minute. Esther's very first action is to say, Oh, honey, by the way, have you met my cousin? She tells the king who Esther was to her. That's such a telling statement. And by the way, right at the moment when the king needs a new prime minister, one who will have his and the queen's best interests at heart, here's Cousin Morty, (laughs) an honorable man who's taken me in ever since I was a little orphan. What's that? Oh, you just rewarded my cousin for saving your life long ago and you totally forgot about it, yet he was faithful to you all these years? Wow. Actually, this has been quite the 24 hours for the king, hasn't it? His mind is just blown here. First, he finds out that his wife of five years, at least, has been a Jew, and he almost had her killed. But now he finds out the man who saved his life, who he just rewarded, is also a Jew. So he gives Mordecai that promotion that he missed out on back in chapter 3. Cousin Morty is made to be the new prime minister. At Esther's recommendation, do you see her power? Mordecai is now exalted to the second highest office in all of Persia. And then Esther sets him over the whole state of Haman. (laughs) Actually, if the king's mind is blown, imagine being Mordecai right now. You just escaped the penalty box to be promoted to vice president. And now you get handed the keys to your enemy's estate. (laughs) Can you imagine walking through, looking at all the riches and wealth that were his enemies that are now his? But friends, this is actually a regular Bible theme. It actually started with the Hebrews plundering the Egyptians. It's good to be God's people. It's good to be God's people even in your lowest moments because our God is a God of great reversals. He is a God of great reversals. Mary understood this. Remember her song? She rejoiced over the one who filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Over and over and over in Scripture, we read of God's great reversals. God humbles the proud, and he exalts those who are humble. Now, I'm not the Pastor Joel who's going to preach to you your best life now, but there are times that for faithful service, God will exalt you. Look what he does to Mordecai in the here and now. And if he doesn't, that's okay. He's calling you to wait patiently for something far, far better. And God can't wait to see you smile when he hands it to you. He can't wait to see you smile. So let's move on to our next word, a plea. A plea from Esther, verses 3 to 8. Now it seems that this scene actually takes place later, on the next day, likely in the inner court. The king, imagine him, he's sitting there thinking, whew, that was quite a day, but glad everything is all resolved. I mean, Haman's execution abated his anger. By eliminating Haman, he's just saved Esther, and because he could accuse her of rape, you know, him of trying to rape her, well, now his honor is preserved. 
Oh, and he just awarded her damages for all the troubles, you know. I gave my wife an anniversary gift the other day. But, man, this is something good. Oh, I got that taken care of. Oh, and a replacement prime minister came up in no time at all. Phew. He's singing, oh, happy day. And then he looks up. She's back. Esther is here once again, uninvited. And again, the king extends the golden scepter. But this time there's something different about her. Esther has been a cool customer. She's been composed. She's been a master chess player. She's even been stoic in the face of death. But not this time. She falls apart. She's a blubbering mess. <laughs> there's no, hey, honey, did you forget that second thing I needed? No. The reason is there's an edict of death that still hangs over her people. We read in Esther 3, Esther falls at his feet. She wept and she pleaded with him for her people. Why does she risk her life again and then carry on so? Pure and simple. It's love. Love that compels her. The greatest love that a Christian can have. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 15? This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down their life for their friends. And Esther has this love. To this point, she sees that all her efforts have really produced nothing. She doesn't care about her new estate and our new power. No, her people still stand with an edict of death hanging over their heads. Are you just struck with how completely different she is than Haman? Haman, last chapter, fell at her feet pleading for his life. She now risks her life, falls pleading at the king's feet for the lives of others. Haman's turned inward. She's turned outward. She and Mordecai are safe, but that means absolutely nothing to her. So she lays it on really thick here. Do you see the language? If it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming on my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Her plea reminds you of anybody's? Reminded me of Moses in Exodus 32. Reminded me of Paul in Romans 9. Both of them said, I wish I were accursed by God. Why? Why would they wish that? They were both wishing that their lives would be forfeited so that Israel, so that their kindred would be saved. Of course, God wouldn't curse Esther. God wouldn't curse Moses. God wouldn't curse Paul. Who did he curse? He cursed his own son on the cross to save you and I. Let me ask you, do you ever wake up and just ponder the wonder of Jesus hanging on the cross, bleeding, suffering, naked, and dying, and saying, Father, forgive Joel. Father, forgive Jane. Father, will you forgive Doug? 
Jesus in pain, pleading that God would curse him so that you and I would be saved. Do I realize that that prayer was essential for my salvation? That sort of prayer? Jesus, God's holy, almighty son who's holding the cosmos in his hand, thought of Joel as better than himself at that moment. Isn't that amazing? Why do I then become desensitized to others? If he would do that for me. Others who right now stand under God's condemnation all around. You know people. Why do I not plead like this, that God save them? Friends, I've actually been convicted this year particularly. And I'm praying more this year than ever in my whole life. Praying, praying for people around me who are standing under the edict of condemnation of God. And I've been seeing God at work saving people. Working. Praise God. I've seen a couple just this month. And I'm re-inspired as I read this text to imitate Esther as she imitates Jesus. And you feel a little tug in your heart right now for a lost soul? That's the Holy Spirit. Let yourself be his instrument and pray for them, plead for them, cry for them, beg God the Father for them. They're eternal souls. And I'll remind you that we have the privilege of a joint prayer meeting later today. What a privilege we have to participate in God's great rescue mission, the greatest rescue mission in all of human history. And you're invited to participate in that. Man, isn't that great? And if you can't make it, make sure you're still on your knees at that time or sometime today praying. Our prayers, like Esther's, are of immense value. Because our Father, He is far more ready to answer our prayers than this rotten king. Ahasuerus, he replies in verse 7, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay his hands on the Jews. Funny, he's changing his story now, right? <laughs> That's not the answer they hope for, is it? But unsurprising because this king constantly abdicates responsibility. The king's saying, look, I've already given you plenty. Come on, don't bother me for more. But he knows they're not going to end there. He knows Esther. <laughs> so in verse 80, he essentially tells him, I've done my part. You use Mordecai's newly acquired power to finish the job. Go, go write a new edict. And notice this is important. He reminds them that an edict sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And here's the problem. Once something is decreed, case closed. That's why the king simply shrugs his shoulder and says, I go figure something out. <laughs> That's where we're at when we come to our third heading. Proclamation. Persian Proclamation, Part 2, verses 9 to 14. We find Esther and Mordecai standing over Haman's decree, wondering what to do. I guess there are some scribes involved, but <laughs> Esther is like, she's saying, Hey, um, Mordecai, how are we going to fix this? Have you ever written a decree? Mordecai's like, I've been a gatekeeper for the last several years. I've only been vice president for one day. What do I know about writing decrees? Much less craft one that can reverse the irreversible. 
And somebody must have had a light bulb moment. Maybe Esther was saying, you know, you know, I'm looking at this, and for an evil villain, Haman does a really bang-up job writing edicts. I was just thinking, you know, he's not around to sue us for plagiarism anymore. You know, Mordecai smiles knowingly and says, all we got to do is just doctor this up a little bit and say the opposite. If you actually compare the chapter 8 edict starting in verse 11 to Haman's in chapter 3, you're going to see all they do is change just a few words in this new edict, allowing for the extermination of the enemy of the Jews. So basically now you have annihilation edict number one versus annihilation edict number two. Here's the rumble, right? Now, if any of you are frowning at the thought of jihad or holy war, I would encourage you to turn your frown upside down till next Sunday, okay? Till next Sunday. Then you can put it back on for, for a sermon and decide at that point in time if modern moral sensibilities are correct in casting judgment here. So you have the Persian Pony Express. They go out 70 days later with an edict. I find that strange. I think the 70 has something to do with Israel's death, right? After Jeremiah's day. And 70 days, 70 years, new life in the land. I think this is pointing us towards resurrection. I'd also say something from Daniel, but I'll confuse myself. So, yes. 70 days later, the Persian Pony Express goes out say that the Jews can do to the same to their enemies that their enemies plan to do to them. But it adds that the Jews now have special status in Persia, which is really important as we come to our final point. Party. Party time. A party for all peoples, verses 15 to 17. And I want you to notice all the joy and gladness in this last passage. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Song comes to my mind, celebrate good times, come on starts with Mordecai, right? He walks out. Presence of the king, he's dressed to the nines now. He's looking good. He's wearing what described as a crown. It's funny, Haman was so wanting something like this, and now Mordecai, look at him now. What a difference a few days makes, right? In chapter 4, he's dressed in sackcloth and ashes. And now he's dressed like royalty. And the people of God rejoice at this triumph. Because he was a walking dead man just in chapter 6. But when faced with temptation even then, he refused to bow before his enemy. And now he's been excited, exalted to the right hand of the throne. And Jews in Susa, in every province, they now have light and gladness and joy and honor. And the good news spreads, which leads to celebration, which leads to feasting, which leads to a holiday. And so now I say, time out. Time out. I want us to consider something. There's a whole lot of joy here, but nothing's changed. It's still pretty scary to be in this world, right? There's still an edict of death hanging over the people. You can be killed. Their enemies are near and present. And they have permission to destroy them. 
They have months of waiting and wondering what Judgment Day is going to be like. And yet they're rejoicing at this new edict sent out by the representative Mordecai. Why are they rejoicing and feasting as if their enemies are already defeated? There's not, they're not. There still remains much uncertainty, a fearful future. They're living in a pagan land. Friends, this joy is produced by anticipation, by anticipation of victory over death. Do you see what's going on here? Friends, Esther 8 is calling us to rejoice and to feast in a place and time. Actually, we're much more like Persia, that secular culture, than we're different, aren't we? Our future is filled with many unknowns. We have coming hurts this year at us. We've got difficulties. We've got a government passing contradictory laws. The Supreme Court says this. They say that. Is our world any different? Increasing hostility towards Christianity. Pastors aren't supposed to preach certain things. Hmm. We can rejoice because Esther 8 tells us Actually, Esther 8 is pointing us to Jesus and the gospel. And it calls us to great joy. Remember Mordecai, he was a dead man in chapter 6. But in a stunning reversal, his enemy was defeated and then he was the one raised up to power. And now from his throne, he sends out an edict that is set to reverse the irreversible. Do you see here a dim picture of the greatest reversal ever in all human history? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because he passed from death to life. Now he can send out an edict calling people to believe the same. Now actually though, Jesus did die. Jesus truly died. How much greater the reversal. At the cross where he triumphed over our enemies, sin, death, and the devil. All of our enemies. And Jesus is now, where is he at? Seated at the right hand of God the Father. And preachers now are his pony express. Sending forth the good news, the edict from the pulpits everywhere. Because Jesus triumphed at the cross and at the tomb. Those who believe in him, they're going to see their stories reversed on that great day. Are you, any of us here wanting a reversal in our lives? Amen, amen. So what you and I are called to do right now is to rejoice, to have joy and anticipation of what's coming. So here's the question that you can take home with you. How is your joy right now? How is your joy as you anticipate a certain salvation? Before you answer that, can I just be real with you for a minute? There are times when I stand up here and I call you to joy when I'm not feeling joyful. I want to rejoice and I wish to know joy well, but there are times when life is really hard, really hard. There are times when I know the roll of the billows, when I know the tossing of the waves, being on a little boat. There are times when I feel like the stormy seas and the dark night are just too much. I feel defeated often, unsure about my course in the world, where everything gets lost eventually and everything dies. So how do I rejoice? The answer is the resurrection. I fix my eyes on the resurrection of Jesus and I see how my story is connected to his. And I keep trying to get glimpses of it. That's why I need to be in church every Sunday. Not just because I'm the preacher, but I've got to be here. Sometimes I hear a word from the pulpit and I was like, wow, that was really good. Because Jesus is showing me his new life. 
the resurrection of Jesus, every time I get a glimpse of it, I begin to experience new joy. Joy that far surpasses all the temporal joys of this life. This joy, yes, and probably for you as well, it pulses, it fades at times. It's kind of like that rotating lighthouse, right? Off in the distance. And then I see a light beam, right? And then it's gone. And then I'm reading scripture and it comes back, giving me that hope that leads to joy to come. I know I'm heading in the right direction. I'm getting nearer to the shore. Yeah, there comes days when the fog is so thick, I can't see anything at all. But I keep looking. I keep looking because I know that in a matter of time, that light is going to pierce the darkness again. And the sea is going to start to shimmer. And joy is going to fill my heart as I see once again my risen Lord Jesus Christ, who's calling me home, calling me home, going to bring me there. Do you know that joy? Have you seen Jesus? He's calling you today. He's calling you. Friends, our future is sure because there's no body in the tomb. Our risen Lord Jesus Christ is reigning and he's in complete control over every circumstance in our lives. All things, good things will work out for good. We get that right. Yeah, good, of course. Bad things, they're going to work out for good. So let's uh, recite again our verse of the month. In your bulletin, I want us to continue to get this deep down in us. Let us all say together, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you remember that, I encourage that, but I want to read what comes after. Right after Paul says, for those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Glorified. Yeah, you got to work on memorizing that, Mike. <laughs> Do you notice how in there Paul speaks in the past tense? Our future glorification is sure because of what Jesus did in the past. All we have to do is keep reading the better proclamation that's been given to us that undoes every evil proclamation that's going to come at you today, tomorrow, and the rest of your life. It undoes every single one of them. Your joy is found in the word of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have reason to rejoice today, you have reason to rejoice tomorrow, and every day going forward the rest of your life until you experience greater joy than you could ever ask for or imagine. Friends, it's not found here in a pagan land where death reigns. It's not found here. It's found in heaven where eternal life is and glory reign where Jesus Christ is. And I'll close with a final reason to cultivate joy by constantly looking at the risen Jesus again and again and again. The last sentence of Esther 8. Let's look at it. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Actually, this is where we're at in the story because we were once not God's people, but now we are God's people. It's only here in the Old Testament where we find reference to people of other races becoming Jews. Pagans are casting aside all their family idols and they're joining the people of God. Why? Because they now see a royal Jew is directing all affairs 
And they also see the people of God rejoicing and feasting, even as a sentence of death still hangs over everybody. Actually, Mark showed me last week that this is actually the greatest revival among unbelievers in all the Old Testament. So I have to repent of my Jonah sermon now. This is the greatest revival. Anybody else want to see a revival in our day? Pagans from 127 provinces are identifying themselves with the people of God because their joy in the land is so attractive. What if Christians were just the most joyful people on the planet in all of America? I will close with a call to pray for the lost and to cultivate resurrection joy. That's the two things. Pray for the lost, cultivate joy, resurrection joy in our lives because wouldn't it be great to see lost loved ones saved and coming to that eternal life. The warning bell of judgment tolls. Above us looms the cross. Around are ever dying souls. How great, how great the loss. O Lord, constrain and move thy church the good news to impart. And Lord, as thou dost stir thy church, begin within my heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we marvel at what you have done in sending your only begotten beloved Son, Jesus, to the cross. And we thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us there to take away that edict of death that stood over us in your resurrection. And we thank you for the pouring out of your Spirit that man might become your dwelling place. How we thank you, Christ Jesus, that right now you're praying with and for us that you're smiling on us, that you didn't just have to die, but you were glad to die for us, and that we who were once not your people are now your people. We who once did not receive mercy, we marvel that we've been shown mercy. Oh, Holy Spirit, will you ever remind us how Jesus came to us in our dying and makes himself available to those who are in need? May many come to know sorrow for their sin and the joy of salvation through our lives, our witness. And Lord, as we leave this place, and as this day of rest will come to an end, <laughs> we confess we so easily forget how to love others. So help us to live as those who have been freed to rejoice in our certain salvation, because in doing so, we will show the world that you have emancipated us from our great enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And perhaps they too will experience the light and gladness and joy and honor of becoming your children too. May your church become filled with saints who will worship and enjoy you for all of eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.